copy of Scripture today to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 12 all the way through verses 17 today just to set the context for the sermon that we're about to hear from Pastor Pete. So Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's begin with prayer. God, we are thankful that we can study this passage, and I pray that you help us to understand your word today. Help us to be open to your leading in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue through our study of Colossians and we look specifically at this passage, we are, I want to ask you a question. Uh, why, why do you come to church? Or, or let me look at it this way. Why don't you come to church? What are excuses you have made? Um, there's an author that uh, I like to read. Uh, his name is Tom Rayner. He's written uh, a number of books. Uh, he primarily deals with church structure, church ministry, church growth, and he, uh, as, as a part of writing these books, he will often do surveys, uh, and so he uses these surveys to assist churches, why uh, people do the things they do in a church. And so uh, he did a survey a number of years ago on why people, what excuses people make uh, for why they don't come to church. Um, now, uh, people give the obvious things that you think of, such as sermons are too long, worship is boring. I was busy. But he also said there are some reasons that people give why they don't come to church that are just, were just too funny for him to ignore. And so he made a list of the, his list was 20, I've narrowed it down, but 20, um, just for lack of a better word, dumbest reasons people give why they don't come to church. Let me go through the, some of those with you. And uh, I don't know if any of you ever used any of these, but uh, they're, they're pretty weird. Okay, first one, we were out of peanut butter. I didn't know if shortage of peanut butter was an issue, why not to come to church, but uh, apparently it is. Here's another one, my wife cooked bacon for breakfast and the entire family smelled like bacon. I just want to say this, we are a pro-bacon church, so if you smell like bacon, you're welcome to come here um, and just make sure you bring some with you. Um, but uh, yes, maybe that is an issue, I don't, I don't know. Next one, now this might be an issue, gas prices are too high, maybe that is a possibility, um, I don't know if that's uh, the reason to skip church, but it is there. This next one you've got to read, because if you look at it quickly, you might not understand what they're saying. The church is too close to drive, yet too far to walk. That is a problem that apparently bothered someone. Now, we are about a mile from here, and it's definitely not too close to drive for me. 
Um, but, uh, you know, if, if that's an issue, maybe you should call someone and have them pick you up. And uh, that would be an issue. Now, I, I guarantee this, this next one is not an issue in our church. At least I hope it's not. The pastor is too attractive. When I see him, I get distracted. There you go. That is, that is yeah. Okay, we're just going to move on. Not an issue. All right, let's go to this next one. I hope this isn't an issue, but maybe it is. I always get hemorrhoids on Sunday. Okay, let's move on. Now, this next one I really, really hope is not a problem here in our church. I really hope, and this person has other issues, but both of my girlfriends attend the church. Yeah, that would be a reason not to come, but maybe there's another issue you should deal with first. I I love this one, and he's not in here, so I'm just going to put it up anyway, and you can mention it to him. But the worship leader pulls up his pants too often. I have not seen Pastor Nate do that, but uh, obviously this was a problem for someone. And and then the final one, we circle back around, I couldn't get the lid off my peanut butter. Apparently that peanut butter is a problem. Now, that was just a warm-up. I'm not preaching on uh, why we do not come to church, but I do want to ask you, why do you attend church? Uh, CNN did a study, uh, uh, and it came up with a list why people come to church, and this one is a serious list. This one's not foolish, but uh, I'm going to give you this, the, the, what CNN came up with in their survey of why people attend church from, from number five down to number one. The fifth reason was sermons can be valuable to me. Okay, It's a little different than too long, but they can be valuable, so that's why I go. Fourthly, people said they come to church because church brings comfort in times of sorrow. Third, I come to church because I want to be a better person. And then second, I come to church because I want my kids to get a moral foundation. And then the first reason that people give in a CNN survey was I hope to uh, get closer to God. These are all good reasons. But again, uh, I'm not talking this morning about why we come to church. You say, okay, you're confusing us. Why are you, what are you preaching on this morning? In order to understand what I'm preaching on, and these things have uh, part of what I'm talking about, but I want to give you a kind of a review of where we've been the last few weeks. Three weeks ago, we looked at, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we looked at Paul's teaching that we, that meaning I, I, I or you that are, have faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we have a new identity. Our identity is based on the fact that we have died with Christ, that we have risen with Christ, that we are hidden in Christ, and that one day we will be glorified with Christ. So I am not what I used to be. I am something different. Not just in my behavior, but in who I am, I am different. And if you are a Christian, so are you. Now, with that idea of new identity, two weeks ago we looked at the uh, verses four through, uh, excuse me, verses five through nine that talk about how we're to put off the old habits of the old identity. If I have a new identity, I shouldn't look like the old identity, and so I need to begin to put off those patterns. In fact, this radical process is so serious that Paul says we're to put it to death, we're to kill it. Now, last week, we looked at the other side of that coin in verses 10 through 14 by learning that we need to put on a new character then. You can't put off without putting on, so put on the, the new character that is, is from God. And, 
And uh, at the end of verse 14, and we didn't have time to expand on that because I went long last week, but the end of verse 14, he says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What's he talking about in that passage? In that particular verse, he begins to get into now how it impacts the church. Because uh, leading up to that, it's about you. You have a new identity. You're a new person. You have changed. And so because you have changed, you put off. And because you put off, you have to put on. And because you put on, now he's going to get into what we're going to talk about this morning in verses 15 through 17 is that uh, how that impacts the church. How your new identity should impact this church and build unity. Why is it that you come to church? It should be, part of that should be to continue to build the identity uh, of who you are and have that impact the church unity. In these three verses, verses 15 through 17, Paul gives us the necessary tools to, build, to begin to build church unity. How do we know that that's what it's about? Look at verse uh, 15, if you will. He starts off with a simple word, and. Okay? And says, as you know, is is joining two uh, thoughts together. What is the thoughts that he's joining together? He's saying, okay, the last thing I want you to put on is love. And when you put on love, it's going to bind everyone together, talking about the church, and it is going to produce perfect harmony. Perfect harmony in and of yourself? No, that's not what he's talking about. Perfect harmony in the church. So, he says that our goal is to produce perfect harmony, and now here I'm going to tell you how to do it. And let. He begins to go on and tells us three things, or excuse me, four things in three verses of these necessary tools of how to build perfect harmony. I think kind of the best way to look at this section of verses is, I, saw, uh, I heard someone say once, it's like an overflow. Okay, so we're putting on all these things that we talked about last week. Compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love. And we're putting these on. And as we get filled up with all of these characteristics, the overflow of that, as we are overflowing, we then respond in the ways that we're going to look at today. So think about it as an, as an overflow. If I'm a person who is loving and I'm filled myself up with love, guess what's going to happen as I interact with others? The overflow of that is going to be these characteristics that we look at today. So what are they? There are four commands I want to give you. First one is to contribute to a community of peace. Now I want to use the word community because I want you to understand what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the, the people that are assembled in this room. Uh, we could use the word church, but, and, and I'm not suggesting we don't use the word church, but oftentimes when we use the word church, sometimes we think, okay, what are you talking about there? Are you talking about our worship time, our church service? Are you talking about the building? Are you ta- talking about the people? And, and so I want to use community because I think we understand the idea of community is, is those gathered, those assembled. And God tells us in this section through the teaching of Paul that we are to contribute to a community. And he gives us these four things. And the first one he gives us is peace. Look at verse 15. He says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's two words that we need to define in this verse in order to understand what Paul is commanding from us as believers. The first one is peace. Now, in a general sense, peace is just freedom from conflict. 
However, in the Bible, we see the idea of peace used in various forms. Let me give you what those are. First of all, there's, there's absence of war. Okay? Uh, a country signs a peace treaty. Okay? That's not what's being talked about in this passage. There's no mention of war. There's no idea there of war. The, the second piece that we often hear about is a, is a personal calmness. Right? I had peace in my soul. Okay? I had peace about a decision that I made. Okay? It's, it's an inner calmness that God gives us and, and that we have and, and, uh, in, in our lives. That's not what's being talked about here in this passage either. Peace could be a settled relationship with God, a relationship with God that is, we are at peace with God. And the Bible tells us because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are at peace with God. That's not what's being talked about here. And so we see that this word peace can go a number of different ways. What is being talked about here is a peace of Christ that produces harmony in the church. How do we know that? There are three indicators that I see in this passage that tell us why it's that type of peace and, and, and so that we understand. The first one uh, indicator leads us to, to define the second word that I want to define. So look at the passage again. He says in that passage, and let the peace of Christ rule. What does this word rule mean? Um, it's, it's the idea of an umpire uh, or a referee. Um, we're heading into football season, and what does, does the umpire or the referee in football do? They, they dictate, don't they? What is going to take place in the game? They, they rule on if what was took place was, was legal or not legal. And then they make a decision based on that. Here in this passage, the word is, is, uh, is similar to what we see in Colossians chapter 2. Turn back to Colossians chapter 2. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. But in verse 18, he said, let no one disqualify you. That's uh, a similar word uh, there. It's no one, but that one's in a negative. Let no one rule you out as an umpire. Now in this one, it's a, it's, it's, it's a positive way. He says, let peace umpire or referee our relationships in the church. Let, let the absence of conflict be uh, what umpires us as we go into the relationship of the church. Now, this is uh, out of an overflow of the characteristics that we looked at earlier. And so we see in this passage that it is the idea of peace should referee our relationships. But the second indicator that that's talking about our relationships is, is the phrase in your hearts. Look again at verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, what, what uh, is the idea? Now, some would say it's referring to an inner calmness, that type of peace. You know, it's, it's in my heart, right? Well, I think we've got to look at verse 16 to understand that's not what's being talked about. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, and we'll, we'll explain this more in a bit, but he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts. Now, that in your hearts refers back to not only the thanksgiving, but to the singing. Now, do you think he's saying singing in your hearts? Like this silent singing that you go around and I'm singing in my heart. No, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a singing which comes from the heart. And so using that idea, go back to verse 15, and when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he's saying rule uh, from your hearts. That's the idea there that uh, the peace should referee our relationships in the church from a heart that cares about others. That's why I said it's an overflow. 
This cannot happen until you love, until you have compassion, until you have kindness, until you are humble. It cannot happen. Think about how that would change relationships in the church. Would there be conflict? No. Now, would there be disagreement? Yes, we're going to disagree. But if we're allowing the peace of Christ, the, the peace that is guided by the words of Christ and by the life of Christ and by the example of Christ and by the death of Christ, if we're allowing that peace to umpire our relationships from a heart that loves other people, guess what's going to happen is we're not going to have conflict. Let me, let me give you an example of something that I don't think is happening in the church right now, but let's, let's say we have, we have Sally. Sally's over here, and she uh, is organizing an event for the ladies. And the ladies are going to go, and uh, she wants to, she has it scheduled already at the end of September, they're going to go to a, a homeless shelter, and they're going to serve food to those that live at the homeless shelter. Great idea, right? Well, at the same time, Lisa over here is deciding she wants to plan an activity too. And she wants to take the ladies and she wants to go shopping. And so both of them have this idea. Sally wants to go to the homeless shelter. Lisa wants to go shopping. And they bring in their request and, and they come to the church office and they say, we want to do this. And we look down and we go, great. And we look down and it's the same day, same time, everything. Now, without peace, what What happens? Without peace as your referee, well, basically, we suddenly have some anger, don't we? Two people have, the same, have an idea, and two people like their idea, and two people think their idea has value and merit, and suddenly we have this argument going on, well, I think we should do my idea. But with peace ruling in your hearts, it's out of a love saying, hey, 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 man, that's a great idea, and it's a love for each other. What happens is this, then, we figure out a way to resolve it. Hey, why don't we do both activities together? That would be a great way to get this done. And so we see that peace ruling in our hearts means that our relationships are seen in such a way where we desire to please God and please others, and so we do not allow conflict to build up in a way that is going to hurt relationships. The third indicator that this peace has to do with the harmony of the church is seen in the next phrase. Look at the end of verse 15. He says this, uh, this peace, and then he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. There's another indicator we know that this is talking about harmony in the body because he's saying you are called to one body and so since you were called to one body, live in peace in that body. I love how uh, the old author John uh, Gills describes this. He says, the saints in their effectual call are called to peace by God who is the God of peace, by Christ who is the Prince of Peace and by the Spirit whose fruit is peace through the gospel which is the gospel of peace. Then he goes on and says this, they're not only called to do this, but they're called to do it in one body. Though they are many members, yet they are but one body. Therefore, they ought to be peace in that one body, seeing that it is unnatural for members of the same body to quarrel with one another. If we're living out our new identity in Christ, as we interact in the church, peace will rule. Peace will referee, which will eliminate conflict. Again, it does not mean that we're going to think exactly alike. We are going to have times where we don't. One of the things I appreciate about my staff, about Pastor Nate and Pastor Will, is, is we're not the same, in case you haven't noticed that. And there are times in our staff meetings where one of us will say something and the other two completely disagree. Usually, because I'm the old dude on the staff, usually it's I say something and the two young guys disagree with me. 
but there's never conflict, okay? We never have had a meeting where it's like, all right, we go over this and, and, and there's punches thrown and we walk out angry at each other. Why? Because peace rules. Not me. Not Pastor Nate, not Pastor Will. Not our own agendas, but peace out of an overflow of compassion, kindness, humility, love, meekness, and patience. Secondly, how do we contribute to the church? We tribute, contribute through peace. Secondly, we contribute to the com- community of word-filled worship. Look at verse 16 as he continues on. He says, let. Now, this is a, uh, there, there is no and here. The and is kind of implied. It's understood. But he said at the beginning of verse 15, how do we want to contribute to this, this unity? He says, uh, and let the peace. Verse 17, he could say, and let. And so this is an added phrase on. He goes on and says, I want to tell you, uh, in the same way that peace should characterize the church, so should what we're going to talk about next, which I am um, look, labeling as word-filled worship. He says here in this passage, he says, the, uh, what are we to do? Let the word of Christ. And what is the word of Christ? Most often in Scripture, we do not see this phrase, word of Christ. We often see word of God. And when we see word of God, we usually know it's in reference to the totality of Scripture. It's in reference to every aspect of Scripture. Now, word of Christ could mean a number of different things. It could mean the message of Christ. It could mean those things that Christ said or it could mean, which I'm taking this to mean, as, as everything that points to the name of Christ, which really is all of the Scripture, because Christ is the central theme of all of Scripture. So this word here he's talking about is, is the Word of God. And what does he say about the Word of God in verse 16? He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. What does that mean? It means to take residence, to permeate into you. To, to be in every aspect of your life, the Word of God should be there. But then he doesn't just say that it should dwell in you, but he says it should dwell richly. I want to illustrate what dwelling richly means with a story. H.A. Uh, Ironside was, uh, was a preacher, and uh, he told the story of a, a godly Irishman by the name of Andrew Fraser, who who came from Ireland to, to Southern California because he was recovering from an illness and, and the climate and the doctors in California were the best place for him to be. And when he came, though he was quite weak, he, he opened up his Bible, his worn-out, beat-up Bible, and he began sharing the deep truths of God in a way that, as Ironside described it, he says, it's a way I've never heard anyone speak about God before. And after listening for a while, Ironside was so moved by Fraser's words that he said to him, where did you learn all of this? Is, is, there a, is there a book that you read that told you about all these truths of the Bible? Did you go to college or seminary? Or who, who's the pastor that you sat under his ministry and you learned all of these truths? Fraser finally just stopped and he said, from a weak, sick body, he said this, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on a mud floor of a small cottage in my home in Northern Ireland. There I would open my Bible before me and I would kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and to open the Word of God to my heart. 
And he taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I could ever have learned from a book or from a seminary or from a college. That is the idea of dwelling richly. How much do you love this word? You know, so many times I talk to people or, or people will come and talk to me and they'll say, you know, I really want to read the Bible, but you don't understand how busy I am. I'm a, I'm a mom and I run all over the place and I've got to take my kids here and there, plus I work, or, or I'm a dad and I take care of my family and, and then I come home and my kids are all over me, or, or I just I don't have time. And here this is saying, out of, out of an overflow of our new identity, he's saying, let the word of God dwell in you richly, deeply, passionately, in every aspect of who you are. The, this idea of the word of God dwelling in us is not just something that is for the pastoral staff. Each believer needs to know and study the Bible deeply, daily, But Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us then three phrases that clarify this deep knowledge of the Word of God that should impact the way that you worship God. Let's look at those. First of all, and I I combine two into one. The first one is worship involves teaching and admonishing one another. Look at the passage, verse 16, and let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, our, our new identity that is overflowing with our new character will be deeply filled with the Word of God, and that should result in us teaching and admonishing one another. Now, I'm choosing my words carefully because I don't want anyone to be offended by this. This is an area that I believe as a church we are not strong in. And I say that not to criticize those of you who are doing this. I say that but this is because this has been a passion of mine since I came 14 years ago. And it's an area that I think as a church we oftentimes have a wrong understanding of what is being said here. Nowhere in this passage is this talking to pastors. You see, it's been talking about individuals all through this. The put off, the put on, the, the peace. This is not talking about pastors, yet oftentimes when we look at a passage like this where it says, hey, we're to, we're to let the Word of God dwell in us ritually, we're to teach, suddenly people go, well, I'm not a teacher. That's for, that's for others. No, this is for every single person that calls on the name of God. You have a responsibility to teach. And yet it's a struggle. It's an area, it's a responsibility of the word that is not just for pastors or formal teachers. And I want to say this, this church will never grow if we continue to buy into the lie that it's not for you. The only way growth is going to happen is if each individual member in this church says, you know what, I'm going to do my responsibility and teach and admonish. Each member and regular tender of this church should be committed to the task of teaching the Word. This is, this is a process that uh, uh, we like to refer to as discipleship. Discipleship is not uh, something that is just for the people who have been to college or seminary. Discipleship is for every single person who is a believer. 
So what is discipleship? Well, he tells us. He says teaching. What is teaching? Well, teaching is the orderly presentation of the truth for believers so that they will know how to grow. It's, it's, the, it's the communication of truth. Some will say, well, I, I, I'm going I'm to teach by the way I live. That is true. We must teach by the way we live, but that is not enough. It must be accompanied by our words. It must be. It's not just enough to say, hey, I'm going to live a godly life, and hopefully by living a godly life, someone will see me, and in the process they will decide, mm, something's different about that person. No, it's, it's by the way we live, in your interactions. You know, we're, we're so... Uh, careful about teaching our hobbies and our desires and our passions, but we are so uh, selective in what, who we think is, has the ability to teach the Word of God. And yet, we see over and over and over again in Scripture that the responsibility to teach the Word of God is for every single person who is a believer. And he says here in this passage, but here's the thing, is you cannot, people say, I don't understand the word of God. Yes, we cannot teach until we first understand the word of God fully. I don't mean every little aspect. I'm saying that we have to get into the word of God and and know it richly and deeply as it talks about in this passage. But secondly, he says admonishing. What's admonishing? Admonishing is warning, cautioning, Displaying, reproving. It's the idea of laying it on the heart and mind of a person, not uh, with the idea of uh, impacting the intellect, but the idea of impacting the will, the emotions, the disposition. Admonishing goes beyond just, hey, uh, an education, and it goes to, to really to the heart. Let me, let me use this in a practical example. Let's, let's say here uh, you have a child who's four or five years old, and they want to learn how to ride a bike. Okay, okay, great. I'm going to teach you how to ride a bike. We have a bike. It's out in the garage. But before we go out to the garage, come in and sit here. And so you come and you sit at the table and you, you begin to explain to your child, here's how you ride a bike. Okay, you sit on the seat. You put your hands on the handlebars and you begin to pedal. It's really neat. All right, good job. I taught you how to ride a bike. Not really, right? No, teaching is, is doing this. I'm going to instruct you, I'm going to teach you, but then I'm going to take you outside and I'm going to put you on the bike. And I'm going to help you with, through the process. And, and you know what? You might fall off and it might hurt. And I'm going to help you get back up again. And you know what? You might fall off again and it might hurt again, but I'm going to help you get back up again until it comes to the point you're successful and you can ride the bike on your own. And then you know, here's the cool part of discipleship. Now you can go and teach someone else how to ride a bike. That is discipleship. And that is what this passage is telling us that we need to be doing. It's saying that out of an overflow of of love and kindness and compassion and humility and, and, and meekness, I want to teach the Word of God because I love people. And then I teach the Word of God to someone and they can teach the Word of God to someone. And that's what we should be doing as believers. This admonishing has to do with application. Some people cannot apply Scripture for themselves, and so they need help. He says in the passage, look there, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all 
wisdom. Now, for some of you, you have a natural location, a natural time to teach, and that is in your families, teaching your kids. But I believe it goes beyond that. Our conversations here around the, on, around the church should be more than just about, you know, Notre Dame football or the weather. But hey, here's what God's teaching me. What's he teaching you? And we grow together. And he adds there at the end of, the, at the end of that verse, we're teaching and admonishing one another how in all wisdom means we're teaching with the knowledge and understanding that only comes from the word, not just our opinion. We don't need to go around and tell our opinions all the time. Honestly, we have a lot of that, don't we? <laughs> just look on Facebook. Everyone's opinion's out for display. We need to teach people the word of God. We need to teach one another the word of God. And as we do that, what begins to happen is we have word-based or word-filled worship. I'm not talking about worship that we have here in this service. I'm talking about worship in your own personal life. But the second aspect of that is worship involves singing with each other. See, it's not just about teaching and admonishing, but our singing ought to reflect that we are dwelling in the word richly. Now, some scholars look at this phrase in, in verse 16, the end of verse 16, singing hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, as uh, how we teach and admonish. Some look at it as how we dwell in, uh, richly in the Word. Um, uh, either way, I think it's, it's, it's an understanding that it leads to uh, harmony, it leads to a unity and a right relationship with God. And so we need to be singing. What, what do we need to be singing? tells us in that passage three things. It says singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, we are not 100% sure what Paul was writing about here. Now, Paul in Ephesians uses similar terminology, and uh, we have an idea what they mean. So let me just give you kind of a rough idea what these words mean. Psalms usually refers to simple songs, uh, songs that uh, speak of trials or difficulties. We see this in David's psalms over and over again, but usually psalms are connected with instruments, uh, specifically stringed instruments. The idea of a psalm here is one that maybe would be sung with a guitar or a harp or a violin, you know, some of the instruments we use up here. That's, that's the idea of a psalm, is something that goes on there. And, and usually the theme in a psalm is about a man's deliverance from trials and difficulties. We think of psalm, we often think of the book, uh, the collection of psalms, and that's true, but it's beyond that. And so, uh, psalm. The second one is hymns. Now, hymn is usually something sung to the honor of God. It's, it's a declaration of how great God is, uh, how powerful God is, how wonderful God is. It's not about the person singing it. Uh, a hymn is a direct address to God. We sing a ton of hymns here, and I love it. Hymns where we're not, we're not just singing to each other. We're actually, if you read the words, we're actually singing to God. I'm so thankful for uh, the songs that we sing. Uh, Augustine, uh, 
uh, a church um, writer uh, from many years ago, he said this, there are three characteristics of a hymn. It must be sung, it must be praised, it must be all about God. I think that's what a, a good, uh, good understanding of psalm. And then he says a spiritual, uh, a spiritual song. Um, this is a song that reflects a personal testimony. And we sing a lot of those too. And, and, and we should. It's part of what God tells us in his word. It expresses the, the grace that God has given to us. And God, I, I, I thank you for all that you have done for me. And I want to sing about it. Um, and, and here, the part of this worship is, worship involves singing. Singing on your own. Singing together. Singing uh, with each other in every aspect that we can think of. And so uh, we need to contribute to this word-filled worship by teaching, admonishing, and singing. Thirdly, we need to contribute to a community of Christ-led purpose. Go down to the next verse, verse 17. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He says there, everything you do. As we continue on this idea, the, this links to the previous uh, verses. It links back to the idea of, of harmony in the church uh, whatever you do. Now, that's just a simple clause that means everything. It's limitless. Uh, the, tragically, though, that is, that is not necessarily how the vast majority of Christians live today. There is this strong tendency in, in people to partition their lives into sections which may or may not be interdependent. Many Christians in our world today tend to divide their lives according to what they regard as secular and sacred. What they regard as, uh, as church and non-church. They, they may acknowledge that sometimes there's an overlap, but, but they, they, there are parts that remain separated from each other. And there seems to be little application what they learn in church as they apply it to work and home. You know, what do I mean by that? Some people have a great, do a great job of keeping their mouth clean at church, but at work they have a foul mouth. Oh, they portray themselves at church, and, and, and I've seen this before, they portray themselves at church as a caring, loving person who, who loves everyone around them, yet at home they're, they're selfish and demanding and hateful. And the result is that they cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed. And it becomes a hard time to witness and teach and admonish because of the hypocrisy that they display. And Paul reminds us in everything we do, no matter what it is, in everything we do, do it for the name of Jesus Christ. And this verse destroys that dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. For a Christian, there is no such division. Every aspect of your life, everything that you, need, that you do, needs to be done for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Everything. Every word you say, every thought you have, every deed that you do, everything needs to point to the name of Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting because he says specifically, everything we need to do needs to be what? in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Uh, you know, remember that the name of Jesus is, is not just an identification. It's more than that. Okay, names are usually identification. And, and, and you know, for myself, many of you know me as, as Pastor Pete. Some of you know me as Pastor, call me Pastor Jones. Some of you call me Pete. Some of you call me, 
I won't even say what some of you call me, but uh, you know, some here and here call me dad. Some here call me ugly or whatever it is. But the point is, those are just identifications. They don't, they don't define who I am completely. But the idea throughout Scripture of the name of Jesus, it's the summary of all he is. It's, it's, the, it's the total sum of everything about the divine being that is Jesus Christ. What that means is everything that we do should point to Christ. One author explains it this way. By his authority, or generally in recognition of his authority, to speak in his name or to act in his name is to speak and act not just for his honor, but under his sanction and with the conviction of his approval. I love that. The idea is not just, hey, I'm going to live in such a way that brings honor and glory to God. No, it's, it's this. I am living in a way, because I'm a child of God, that what I am doing is approved by God. Who? how often can we not say that? And that is the idea of what Paul is saying here. Then in whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do under the sanctioned approval of Jesus Christ. That's hard to do, isn't it? And finally, we contribute to the community of gratitude. Now you may have noticed that in each verse I skipped a portion because each verse contains an attachment that's rather interesting to the command that was given in that verse and each one has to do with thankfulness. Look at the end of verse 15. So verse 15 he says, hey, let this peace rule in your hearts and be thankful. Uh, and be thankful there is, is something that begins and continues to go through life as you, are, as you are living in peace with one another. And so it's a connection to that, but yet it's at the same time different. It's saying there, as you live in peace, do so with a thankful heart. <laughs> in other words, it's not one of these things, okay, I'm going to live at peace, but I have, hate every moment of it. No, it's with thankfulness. Then in verse 16, he says there that we're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving. This overflow, again, is this idea of this thankful heart that comes of, God, you have done so much for me. This goes back to who God is in chapter 1 and what he has done for us in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And all of that is, God, I am thankful. That's why I sing. I, you know, I used to say this when I was a youth pastor, when I'd look at teenagers that would not sing. It's, it, that tells a lot about your heart. Because if you're a, a person who, is, who, who has been blessed by God, I mean, you are going to sing out for the glory of God. Then he says at the end of verse 17, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks, giving thanks. Everything we do is for the, the praise of, and glory and honor and approval of God, and in all of that we give thanks in everything that happens. Are we a thankful people? Are we a thankful people? I was thinking about that just just uh, this morning as I was I was I was going through this message again and and uh, this week Friday I got my cast off. Okay, 
which means I can drive now. I haven't driven in two months, and so I was thanking God, hey, I can finally drive. But you know what? I'm thankful that through the last two months, I have a wife who's taken me everywhere. And I'm thankful for that. We should be thankful for everything that God does for us. Thankfulness should be a hallmark of a genuine Christian faith. We see it over and over again in Scripture. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually. Continually. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, in everything. That can only be done if our hearts are correctly set on the Lord so that we seek to understand life according to his direction, according to uh, his way, and we trust him for the future, even when we don't understand the present. Giving thanks in all things can only happen if we take the time to understand what I'm going through, this circumstance that is just, just stinks, yet it's from God. And I'm thankful. As we look at these verses and look at this, this idea of thankfulness, each, one in this, each time thankfulness was used, it's different, but they all lead us to the conclusion that we are to grow in thankfulness. I'm going to conclude here just a couple things. First of all, a life lesson. The, com- co- uh, the community grows as we overflow from a character received from a new identity. Are you overflowing in your life the character that God has given you with your new, the, g- continues to give you with your new identity? Are you allowing peace to rule in your relationships? Are you allowing the word to fill your worship, whether it's teaching, admonishing, or singing? Are you allowing your purpose to be driven by Christ and his name? And are you thankful for all of it? We should be. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word here. We're thankful for this text. God, as we begin to interact with each other, it's... Uh, sometimes it's hard to be at peace. Sometimes we don't agree with things that people say, and it's, it's in our flesh we need to lash out, but Lord, I pray that you help us to, out of that love and compassion that we talk to, live in peace. Lord, I pray that you help us that as we, as we dwell in your word richly, as we spend time in your word, but not just for ritual or, or for some checklist, but Lord, as we spend time in your word so we know you better, I pray that the outflow of that is that we teach and we admonish and we sing. Then God, I pray that everything we will do will be for your name and for your glory. And then, Lord, help us to be thankful in the process. Lord, if there's anything here that you have convicted people of this morning, uh, Lord, I pray that you'll help them to, to be honest. I pray that you'll help them even to go and tell someone about it share what God is doing as a, as a way of even teaching through that process. Lord, and I pray that you will use this message in all of our lives, and we ask that you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.